Hey, everybody, and welcome to Tuesday's R for Talking. If you detect a different voice, it's because it is a different voice. This is Morgan Stevens. I'm a lead pastor at Mosaic Church, and normally you'd come on here expecting to hear Pastor Nathan Brown, who does a great job with this, but Nathan is on vacation for a few weeks, and so I have bravely or perhaps foolishly agreed to step into his shoes and try to host this, And but I'm really excited to be here with you all today again on Tuesdays are for talking where we talk about a whole lot of stuff with a whole lot of people relevant to your life relevant to our church life at Mosaic Church and I'm super excited today because on the podcast with me is one of my best friends someone I've known for quite a long time I mean I respect a whole lot Dr. Gay Bouch he is the lead pastor at Freedom Church in Philadelphia PA welcome today Gabe Bouch so happy to be on with you, Morgan. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. And our audience can't see that, but you actually said it with a smile on your face, which leads me to believe you're telling the truth. Um, and so I, we just already appreciate you very much for that. So anyway, um, Gabe, again, glad to be on here with you. Just a, a few things about Gabe. Again, uh, he's married to Jennifer, who I've known for quite a long time. Uh, quite a large family. Let's talk about that first before we get into, again, our, our, your background, because I think who you are and what you do is super relevant to our church, uh, to where our nation is, your incredible church there, right there in Philadelphia. Uh, and then we'll talk about the future of the church as you see it in one key way. Uh, I think you can help us all with that. So yeah, talk about a little about your background. You're married, you're talking about you, your, your children. Yeah, yeah. You, you are not lacking for... Um, opportunity for uh, sleep deprivation. We'll put it like that. That's right. Yeah, I joke around. I, I don't think I've been bored in over 20 years. Uh, my wife, Jennifer, and I met when we were both students at Florida State University, and um, we got married just a few weeks after graduating from college, which I think was a good idea. And uh, as you alluded to, we do have six children, ranging in ages from 21 all the way down to seven. And uh, Four girls, two boys, and it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of activity in our house. Um, Morgan, you mentioned before we pressed record this morning, you heard the piano in the background, and that uh, happens a lot around our house. So it, while we've been in pandemic season, I have officed a few times from my minivan in the driveway. And sometimes even then, like my children come out and find me and start knocking on the window. And so uh, I love them. And also, it's hard to get away from them sometimes. Man, yes, that that sounds very familiar. So, you know, Carrie and I, of course, have four kids, not quite six, but there sometimes you do you do wish for the moment of peace. It's like, you know, you, all day you're like, man, I can't wait for when everybody goes to bed and they go to bed and you're like, ah, I want to see my kids again. It's some like, it's a strange parent uh, sickness disease, but it's it's a gift. Family is a gift for sure, too. Um, yeah. So again, many of you may know Gabe because Gabe's actually been into our church to preach before. I think roughly like just a year and a half ago, you came in on the tail end of a Every Nation campus conference and, and preached for us there. So some of you may remember him. This is the same Gabe. Um, let's talk just a bit about your background. So you may people may have heard me reference the, the doctor title, um, and that is true. You actually have a degree in what? Just Just for the records, everybody knows. Yeah, I did a uh, PhD in mathematical physics at uh, Rutgers University. A little more emphasis on the mathematics and the physics, but, uh, you know, Morgan, <laughs> I, actually, I, I couldn't get away from it. Both of my parents were high school math teachers. So, you know, starting at like age three, they're quizzing me on math, you know, facts and giving me little geometry puzzles. And so it was in my genes. And even That's if it hadn't it been in my starts. genes, it always begins there. 
It starts That's with right. a puzzle. It ends with a PhD. So yeah, that was that was the path I walked, and uh, it was great. I actually had both of my parents as teachers in high school, which most people would think would be a nightmare, but uh, they were math teachers. They were great teachers, and that was my best subject. So it worked out, man. You know what balanced it out, though? When I was an undergraduate, you didn't mention this, uh, at Florida State University, I was in the circus. So I felt like I was going to bring that up. You've got it. I promise you I was going to bring that up. But since you brought it up, (laughs) it's not on me. It's on you. So go ahead. Talk about the the, the math guy in the circus. Yeah, I I was the bearded lady. No, not actually. I I juggled. And uh, which is... I mean, I did try some other other things, and um, like there was, I was on a hand balancing team, but uh, the only problem was I was really weak and had terrible balance, so that didn't work out so well. And so I found my niche with juggling, which is a lot more mathematical, actually. So, uh, you know, if the sermon's ever going really badly, I can just bust out a few objects, and you know, that kind hey, of pay no attention out. to the words that were coming to my mouth. Just wash my hands. Wash my hands. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So how how does how does a guy go? So you're from Florida, Florida originally, is that correct? Yeah, Florida. Yeah. You, you go to Florida State University. You're in the circus. You're you, you like math. How, how how does that all translate now? And like, man, you end up in vocational ministry, like you're pastoring. Like, how how does how do you go from in the circus, PhD, and then later in life, man, now it's it's church life. You know what? I'm glad you asked that question because. Um, I think it's such a picture of how God works in our lives. And I actually, while I was in college, had a pretty significant experience. I was in a, I was in a class. It was some entry-level computer programming class that all math majors were required to take. And I remember we were having a conversation in the class. We we're going over a homework problem. And the professor began to explain what the answer was. And I can remember in that moment thinking, oh, wait, that's that's not the right that's not the right answer. And so I kind of put my hand up and said, I, I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be this. And and he said, no, 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 it's, it's going to be this. And and the next thing I know, we're sort of having this back and forth discussion. And um, and it was one of those few times where I thought like, like, like I, I know what the answer is. This guy's just making a mistake. So we go back and forth and eventually he says, oh yeah, you're right. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. And Morgan, it was so interesting. I was a pretty young follower of Jesus at that point in my life. And right in that moment, it was as the Holy Spirit came to me in that classroom and said, I want you to do what you just did in this class, but with the gospel. And it was one of the first moments in my life of really receiving God's call. And you know what's interesting about that is um, we all know, of course, the famous story of Peter being called by Jesus. And you know how how Jesus comes to him and says, uh, you're going to be a fisher of men. And, you know, so many times we think like, oh, yeah, we're called to be fishers of men. And it wasn't until years later that it struck me that, you know, there were so many parallels between the way Jesus called Peter and, you know, Peter knowing I've spent my life in a boat on the water. This is who I am. This is what I know. And Jesus couched his calling in something that he knew. And as if to say, I've been preparing you for this for your entire life. And it wasn't until much later I realized, oh, wait a second, God was doing the same thing with me. He was taking something that I knew that I felt confident in as if to say, I've been preparing you for something your entire life. But it's not just going to be about mathematics. 
it's going to be about people and helping them find me. And, um, you know, that's over 20 years, you know, over 25 years ago now. And that still is so um, powerful in my own life of how it shapes me. That is powerful. And it's super encouraging as well. And you guys, of course, listening in on, on the podcast today, you heard Gabe's that, that little anecdote really has paved the way and been a truth Gabe, Gabe has lived out that's going to bring us back around to another point in our conversation that I, I, I want to get back to. Um, but thank you for sharing that. I, I had a, a similar type experience as a student at the University of Houston. And of course, we haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, Gabe and Freedom Church Philadelphia are, are part of our Every Nation family. Um, and so if Every Nation is something that's new for you, Every Nation, uh, the Every Nation family of churches and ministries definitely places a premium on campus ministry, on touching uh, the college campus, reaching students. That's how Gabe came to be here. That's how I came to be here. A lot of folks at Mosaic Church. Uh, are, are, are who they are today is because of campus ministry. Um, and you can just hear that, that powerful story uh, right there. Yeah, so Gabe's a college student, meets Jesus in the circus, juggling, loves math, uh, gets a, a PhD. And then, man, just uh, just quickly, how, do, how did you go from getting that PhD to deciding you wanted to actually lead a church? Because it seemed like you had a one career path, right? Trajectory, perhaps like higher education, you know, being a professor, teaching. Um, at a university, and now all of a sudden, man, you're 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 doing church planning. How did that go? Yeah, great question. You know, it's one of those that on paper looks so wild. You know, because literally, I graduated with my PhD in um, May of 2011, and in June of 2011, I became the lead pastor of Freedom Church. So, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, you've been, I, you've been I, training for this your whole life. <laughs> exactly, wasn't exactly you know what my uh, my advisor was expecting. Uh, yeah, on paper it looks very strange, but really, Morgan, you know, uh, it was all about the same mission and calling for me, and um, and I've had a heart for the university setting. I think you know that's again where I experienced uh, this calling from Jesus uh, to this mission, and have always had a heart to influence the university setting with the gospel. And so there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, I was in college ministry for a number of years. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, pursuing this PhD, you know, I love learning, love mathematics, and thinking about the possibility of being an influence from the inside of the university as a professor. And, um, but ultimately ended up leading a church in Philadelphia, where we have all kinds of colleges and universities. And um, in fact, you know, every fall when there's not a pandemic over, you know, a four or five week period, we'll have first time guests from something like 15 or 16 local it's colleges incredible. and universities. And so um, really for me, the things weren't quite as different as they look on the paper because it was still the same mission of how can I engage people doing things I love with the gospel in the university community. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And I've been blessed to get to experience a lot of different ways of doing that. Yeah, just real quick for our Texas audience here, especially like list off some of those universities and colleges real quick, because again, in Austin, there is one mothership. It is the University of Texas. You know, there's some smaller schools, Concordia, St. Edwards, Houston Tillotson, 
Uh, and then of yeah. course our community college system here, but man, UT is, a, it's, the, it's the dominant force, but in Philadelphia, it's not quite that way. So just real quick, what are some right. colleges you guys have? Yeah. There? So Temple University is a big public university right in the heart of Philadelphia. A lot of people know them because they're really, you know, great at basketball and, uh, but you know, big school, 30, 40,000 students. And, um, and then, uh, the, uh, an Ivy League school, University of Pennsylvania. That's the actually the southernmost Ivy League school in the United States, uh, and one of the largest. Also, uh, right in the heart of Philadelphia, and Drexel University, a large, um, historically a lot of focus on engineering and and business. And then you've got Thomas Jefferson University and LaSalle and Villanova. A lot of people know, again know them. Basketball, basketball yeah. uh, Rutgers University, Camden, right across the river, and um, University of the Arts, uh, University of the Sciences, mm. uh, uh, just a bunch of uh, a bunch of universities there. So it's a city full of geniuses, and you fit right in. But that, <laughs> um, just real quick, something I want to talk about too, because you brought it up, which was you know basketball and hoops and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm familiar with Temple, of course, Milo Monterey University of Houston. They play in the same conference, and so there's some back and forth there. Um, but what's it like, just real quick, as people are wondering, like, you know, Philadelphia's obviously a big sports town, and something people may not know about you, which is, again, despite, man, the math thing and the PhD thing and all the culture deal, which is part of who you are. You're also a big sports fan, too, and I enjoy chopping sports up with you quite a bit. What's it oh, like yeah. being a sports fan there? Because if you're from Texas, and sorry for all the non-sports people on the call, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, too. We've already hinted at music and all that. But if you're from, if you're from Texas – you, I've got two memories of Philadelphia, or Philadelphia sports. One is the the Eagles fans rooting for Michael Irvin, the Dallas Cowboy, being injured in a game a long time ago, and Buddy Ryan and all that kind of stuff, uh, the coach of the Eagles. And then I think there's like, you know, of course, Rocky, that, that's a part of our cultural lore. But then also I think it's like Philadelphia fans putting batteries in snowballs when it's and throwing them at the opposing <laughs> team players. It's, is this all you know, true, Gabe? Can you confirm this? Well – what I can tell you is the first Philadelphia Eagles football game I went to, I uh, actually a mutual friend of ours, Morgan, gave me amazing tickets. Kind of ruined me to ever go to any other game again because I sat on row two on the 50-yard line. Hmm. So I was basically on the sideline, and we were on the sideline of the uh, the visiting team. And there was a player on the other team, a wide receiver, who had previously played for the Eagles – and not from his own initiative, just got traded by the Eagles. So he wasn't looking to get out. He was a great player, actually still plays in the league. And he got rooted. And there was a guy maybe four seats away from me who for the entire game yelled at this player on the sideline saying, I hate you. Oh, my goodness. I mean, for two and a half hours straight yelled at him. I actually saw an article the next morning in ESPN where they were talking to this receiver and he was saying, yeah, I don't really understand the animosity. It's not like I <laughs> was trying to leave. I had a great experience, you know, in Philadelphia. And I thought, okay, that's just how they do it around here. So sadly- the city of brotherly love. Yes. <laughs> the irony is dripping, eh? Yes. yes yeah, it's, so it's, it's a little dripping. wild. Very good. Um, well, you know, for those of you who, who don't know Gabe and are, are a little bit even in a mosaic, you know, Gabe, you may not know Gabe and I've been friends for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, just I wonder if you could comment on this. I told the story, uh, one of my sermons at the time where I almost died up in the mountains this is a few years ago 
on our hike. So Gabe and I are part of a, a close group of circle of pastor friends, and we basically do a prayer retreat every year kind of together and spend most of our time, you know, just connecting and open our lives up, praying for each other. But we do, you know, kind of one, one, one fun thing, outdoors thing, and we tend to take a hike and we tend to go to Colorado. Um, and so this is the one where, you know, oh boy. James almost revoked our friendship. Donnell almost died. And you're That's left right. wondering who the heck is leading this. Um, in, in, any, any memory you want to, you want to throw out there or clarify for our audience today? Well, I think the only, the only defense I have for us is I think when you just get up above 10,000 feet and the oxygen gets pretty thin, that, uh, maybe we're, our brains aren't functioning at a hundred percent. And, uh, so there was a lot of wandering around and, uh, <laughs> it definitely became clear at some point that we don't really know where we are and, it's getting dark and we're not sure if there's going to be a way down this mountain, except for us camping on this mountain <laughs> and walking down. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, sadly, Morgan, I have a terrible sense of direction already. So I knew from the beginning I was going to be no help. Uh, so I just tried to stay in the background, but I, maybe I would have helped. I don't know. Maybe it would have, maybe two wrongs would have made a right and it would have, uh, see that using math again, math is the answer for everything. Two wrongs. That's right. And the right. Anyway, very good. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about your church and just what it's like to, to minister and to do church life. Again, you have a multi-ethnic church. You, you face a lot of the same and identical tensions uh, to what Mosaic Church Austin faces, of course, in a different setting, different city, part of the country and all that. But a lot of the same tensions politically and ethnically and all that is run right in, through your church as well. What's it like to do ministry in Philadelphia? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things I realized right away was uh, Philadelphia is one of those cities where any type of ministry you might want to do, you could do in Philadelphia because you just have the whole gamut of experiences and backgrounds as you've got people who've lived in Philadelphia all their lives and have that experience. As you mentioned, um, you know, obviously we have, like any big city, some very wealthy people and some extremely um, just uh, economically challenged areas. And you've got pro sports and you've got all these academic settings. And, you know, we've got one of the best children's hospitals in the nation there and five medical schools. So there's just, you know, we in our church, I'm sure similar to yours, we have all kinds of people who were not born in the United States. So you're right, Morgan. It's just, it's on the one hand, a beautiful and amazing place to do ministry. Any sort of um, area that you might feel called to, there's an opportunity there. And you know what? We have found that, I'm sure just like Mosaic Church, that's actually one of the things that really draws people to our church as they walk through the doors earlier this year, they did anyway. Like imagine like seven yes. months ago, yes, they yes, walked yes. through the doors. Now they metaphorically walk through the doors. Yes. They, they, they and, click on a link. Yeah, That's right. And um, and they look around and I think they're just, you know, there's a sense of, wow, this is, there's such a diversity here. And and the, I think the people that really become a part of Freedom Church are the people that something inside of them says, I want that. That's what I'm looking for. I, I want to be a part of a group like this. And so it's simultaneously the thing that draws us. But of course, that diversity, as you know, can also be a tension that, 
you know, wants to push you apart a little bit. And so it's for sure something to navigate. And even, even recently we've been, this is a topic we've been leaning into a lot and, you know, trying to have the difficult conversations, trying to, you know, we started emphasizing something uh, even just a few weeks ago, get close and listen, get close and listen. And there's something about relationship that can drive out suspicion that naturally exists when you're around people that uh, you don't know very well and that, you know, come from a different background. So, uh, yeah, it's challenging. There's those moments, of course, when you think you're close and then a certain topic comes up and people, you have that feeling of, oh, wow, maybe I didn't know you how I thought I knew you. And maybe I don't feel as close to you as I thought I did. And we all have to resist that temptation to just pull back and draw away and, you know, hide in our own, you know, comfortable s- spheres. But, um, but I think here, here's the thing that encourages me, Morgan, and I know this is a core value for you all as well. We just know God desires this. And so he helps us and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it's easy, uh, but we do feel him helping us. And, uh, and boy, we need it as we approach an election. Yeah, we sure do. It's very well put. And, you know, um, you know, the, th- it's interesting. I, I quote this to my church all the time. And it, it, if someone's been around, they've heard me reference this name in the study. I know you have too. We've talked about this. Um, but of course, is Michael Emerson's research. Dr. Emerson is one of the foremost, if not the foremost researcher on religion and race in the U.S. And he's a, he's a Protestant Christian. He, he loves God. He's you know, uh, definitely a disciple of Christ. A brilliant man too. And he and a diverse group of researchers have done quite a lot of, of study on, on just church and f- Christian faith, and it's broadened about it's broadened a bit in more recent years to you know to Islam and and and, and Buddhism and Hinduism, other faiths, but it's primarily rooted in, in in the Christian faith. And one of the things that he's he's pointed out, and again, if you're listening to this podcast today, you'll have heard me reference this this past Sunday. But that's churches that that are truly diverse, um, and not just like there's a sprinkling of some group that's like a minority, like. The diverse they would define as like just even just twenty percent non-majority, which of course is not what we are. It's not what you are. It's just across the board. It's be there may be one group that's slightly the the majority, but it's not like fifty percent plus. It's in the thirty to forty percent range. That's the the biggest bucket group of people typically. Um, but that those churches who are diverse like that, diverse politically, and who have uh, diverse leadership that goes not just you know sort of on the 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 member level, but all the way to, to the leader level, all the way to the top churches like that constitute 1% or, or fewer churches in the U S. And so it's like I say to our church, I'm, I'm, I'm going here for, I'm saying this for a reason, uh, just in, in, in reference to what you, you said just a moment ago, but it's like I've said to, to our church before, if you went to the doctor and they said, Hey, listen, there is a 99% chance that you won't make it. You've got a problem. There's a challenge here. You're not going to make it only a 1% or chance, less chance that you're going to make it actually. And then you do, and you keep making it, you know, what would you call that? Well, I think most of us would, you know, for the, of a faith persuasion, would call that a miracle, miraculous. That's right. And that's how we see our church. That's how I see any multi-ethnic church like yours. And so to you, to your statement, man, we feel God helping us. Um, you need that. There's a, there's a needs to be a miraculous sense of God's nearness to us 
as we try to do ministry in what's increasingly a divided context. We know we know this. Emerson references this as well. You know, and again, I'm for every church. I mean, we need every church to preach the gospel and make disciples and love their city. But we know this is this is the human nature that monoethnic churches tend to unintentionally reinforce tribalism because yep. you're just taking care of your own people, right? I love right. my family for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is going around on the most. I'm, I'm, you know, taking care of. And so this is the challenge that we have is to undo some of that tribalism and form a new tribe, Galatians 3, where we're all one, uh, one mm-hmm. in Christ. So um, everybody's got, you got a free, free sermon there, everybody. You, of course, feel free to respond to that. I was just going to say, you know, sometimes we forget that, you know, the multi-ethnic church of the first century also was a miracle. For sure. Yes. I mean, you know. I, Jews and Gentiles, I mean, there was like over a thousand years of history that had to be overcome for them to, you know, be able to walk together. I mean, you probably know this, but in the Jewish temple, you know, you had the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of men. Well, there was a wall separating the court of Gentiles from the court of women. And all over the wall were signs warning Gentiles, if you cross this barrier, you will be killed. And so, you know, th- just the mindsets and the cultural differences and the, you know, barriers that had been there for so long. I, it's so easy for us, you know, in retrospect to think, of course, Jews and Gentiles worship together, but it took a miracle. It was, and, and we read about that all throughout the book of Acts. And you see how many times it was really the Holy Spirit who was initiating and helping and making that happen. But it again, it encourages me because we know this is the heart of God and he will do miracles on our behalf to help us uh, be a people like that. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. And it's true. I think, I don't know when it was, this is a few years ago after I'm sure getting my, you know, I guess hat handed to me uh, trying to do multi-ethnic ministry. And I really discovered, like you said, that the New Testament is is just, it's not just marked, but it's defined by in many ways. Um, this Jew Gentile not not only conflict, but then um, restoration. You know, bringing together people, and that was the miracle. I did a study. I, had a, I read. A, I took a seminary class um, on church planning, and one of the books we read just talked about how, if you look at the New Testament, every church has a, a basically a, a power encounter or a miraculous event that launched it. That's at its core. It's at its it's part of a story. Thessalonica, you've got this, you know, riot. Um, Of course, in Jerusalem, it's the, it's the, it's Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, Every church had Ephesus, you know, the temple of Diana and Artemis and all that. But when you get to Antioch, there's no thing like that until you begin to peel back the layers and you read the leadership of the church, which is, um, uh, which is not listed elsewhere in other churches. But the leadership is all multi-ethnic. There's Africans. Right. Um, there's people from, you know, there's, you, you, Greeks, uh, people from all over the world. And there's listed together to show you, again, if people listed out, I'm Gabe from Philadelphia, Morgan from Austin, so-and-so from Tunisia, so-and-so from Melbourne. You would know, oh, they're telling me a story here. And that was the mm-hmm. miracle of the church of Antioch. You'll notice, of course, it was at first at Antioch that the disciples were called Christians. Because nothing could keep people together like that across the Roman Empire except for the the fledgling Christian faith. And so, yeah, there's a real miracle thing that we're after that we just have to have. We depend on the supernatural power of God to make 
to make church go. I just respect you and your efforts so much for what, all that you do uh, in Philadelphia. We know it's got historical racial tensions there too. And mm-hmm. you're right there trying to be Isaiah 58, you know, repair of the breach. Amen. But let's, let's, uh, let's, let me shift the conversation just a little bit and talk here for our audience and let you kind of help us for, um, of course you've been helping us uh, uh, just by being on here, but specifically with an area of an interest that I know is, is near to your heart, in addition to multi-ethnic ministry, which has to do with the subject of giving a defense for the Christian faith, sort of the Christian bucket of what's mm-hmm. called apologetics, not apologizing for Christianity, but giving a defense for that apologia. And some I know that you're passionate about, you're very skilled in, you've done this uh, globally across the world. You've traveled some and spoken in uh, universities internationally and done this, of course, and you across college campuses across the U.S., you've done this. Just talk about why, first of all, apologetics is so, it's a meaningful part of your, your Christian experience of your church. And maybe we'll get into to some specifics and some nuance from there. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things I love about following Jesus and the Christian faith is it really meets us in every part of our humanity. Uh, It addresses who we are relationally. It addresses our psychological needs. It addresses our spiritual needs. And um, and it certainly um, enables us to uh, it's as you've mentioned, it can be defended intellectually. And the longer I've been a follower of Jesus, the even more confident at the intellectual level I am in the faith. And so I just think for anybody to grow as a follower of Jesus, it's actually important for us to grow in all of those areas. And many times what I find happens for people is they become a follower of Jesus at some stage in their lives And they continue to develop in other areas. They continue to develop relationally. Maybe they go to college and develop themselves intellectually in a specific discipline. But sometimes um, their their intellectual understanding of the faith doesn't also grow. And many times that doesn't get exposed until maybe you're in a pandemic or maybe you're in some family crisis and, and you begin to ask hard questions about what is what is actually real and where is God and is the, all of this really true? And it's in those moments that I think it can be helpful for us to understand that the Christian faith really is robust at that level as well. And so, you know, really oftentimes I find two categories of people. One is those who are not yet followers of Jesus and they've got so many mental obstacles to the faith, they're not even open relationally to, you know, to say something to them like, well, why don't you just pray? That seems so ridiculous that for them to ever get to a step like that, some of those obstacles that are in their minds need to be addressed. Not not because that's going to necessarily convince them to be followers of Jesus, but just you're sort of clearing the path a little bit so they can even be open. And the second category is, again, is what I was alluding to many times You'll have somebody who has what they feel like is a real encounter with the living God. And then at some point, their mind starts to catch up and they're trying to make sense mentally of what they've experienced relationally or emotionally. And and so they start asking questions. Well, is this really true? And this is where I think this discipline that you're referring to apologetics can be can be really helpful. And, you know, 
we mentioned my background is mathematics. You know, one of the things I enjoy about mathematics is uh, the clarity, you know, the understanding that comes with it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, once you learn to start thinking clearly in an area like mathematics, then of course, you know, it's satisfying to apply that to a bunch of other areas as well. So I, I think it's an area, you know, and honestly, in our cultural context, you know, places like Austin, places like Philadelphia, the Christian faith is not assumed to be true by mm -hmm. any means. That's right. And uh, we live in, um, you know, just settings where, if anything, the default position is that's going to be questioned. And, you know, what's interesting is, again, especially in academic communities, you know, what what is true for many people, and of course, people have different worldviews and different backgrounds, is science, right? And even in the pandemic and the political discussions, I mean, you see signs out like, I believe in science, science is real. And um, mm -hmm. of course, you know, I love science. That's, that's my background too. Uh, but it's almost sort of, set up against each other of, well, you know, you've got a scientific worldview or mindset, and that's just completely at odds with sort of a faith mindset. And these set, are almost set up in opposition mm -hmm. to each other in a lot of contexts I'm in. And so that's an area that I think can be helpful to have some clarity on. It's so well put in, obviously, you know, your, your, your passion for the subject matter just comes out. And I love that. Um, as a, you know, sort of a, not just a former, but in that sense, like a, a lifetime campus missionary It's kind of like being a Marine. I've been told like, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, once a campus missionary, uh, you know, always a campus missionary, that definitely you're always having to be able to give a, a defense for their faith. But of course, scripture commands us to do that. Right. Um, and I think it's Peter, you're not necessarily like the most intellectually robust of, of individuals. He's a fisherman, uneducated, and yet he still recognizes the need even for the quote unquote uneducated average everyday lay person to be able to give a defense for the faith, you know? So That's with that right. in mind, let me ask you just this real quick. What, what do you, there's, I guess I could go a couple of ways with this. Um, I'll ask you to just talk about, just about the resurrection. Yeah. Um, just, just real quick, because f for me, and I emphasize this all the time with my church. I mean, if you're listening to this today, you know, this past Sunday, I emphasize it again, that our, our, our faith, the Christian faith doesn't, begin necessarily in, in, in Genesis, as crucial as Genesis is, um, but it begins, uh, you know, on a cross. It begins on Calvary, begins with an empty tomb. Um, yeah. That's the Christian faith. And so the resurrection hangs on, on a fact that either did or didn't, it either is or isn't. And that's, that's in the realm of science now a little bit. That's history. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so talk about why the resurrection is so, you know, I had these conversations before, so sure, yeah. and it just comes, it tumbles out of your heart. You've done quite a bit of study on this research. You even know people are at the center of this conversation happening across the U.S. now with you know, high level atheist and Christian kind of conversation debate. So mm -hmm. what, um, what's compelling to you about the resurrection? Why, how could a person believe it? Yeah, I'm so glad you bring that up and you're right. Um, it's just so important, you know, for me, the very center of our faith is Jesus is Lord. And that's all wrapped up in the resurrection. And so you make a great point there, Morgan. And it's, you know, as you pointed out, when you read through the book of Acts, that's what they were proclaiming over and over again, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In fact, one of the few places that we see the word proof show up, at least in the NIV, right. is in, I think, Acts 17. You know, he gave proof, proof. of this, raising him from the dead. You know, um, yeah, I love to go to 1 Corinthians 15. And and people, you know, sometimes people think like, oh, gosh, you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible. 
But I think that's a bit of a misunderstanding. And what I mean by that is um, what we have in the New Testament, you know, regardless of where a person is with regards to faith, these are historical documents. These were letters that a human being in the first century wrote to another group of people. And scholars of all, all philosophical and theological persuasions, they all date a letter like 1 Corinthians, you know, to around the same, you know, few years, somewhere around uh, the early 50s. And so here we've got this document written um, you know, it'd be like me talking about something that took place in college, which we were doing earlier. You know, it's not that hard for me to, re, you know, I have all these flashbacks of, yeah, ridiculous things that happened in the circus. You know, it's not so ancient of like, oh, yeah, I'm talking about this thing I can barely remember. Morgan, I remember when you and I met for the first time. So Paul is essentially in this letter writing about a time that was about that uh, recent for him. It was like us talking about our college years. and. Um, and of course, the the background here is he's writing to a bunch of uh, people from coming from a culturally Greek uh, Hellenistic perspective, in which um, an idea of a bodily resurrection wasn't part of their sort of philosophical equipment. That wasn't a concept that would have been naturally desirable. And so, it looks like in Corinth, you've got people turning this into something more of like a a spiritual resurrection, making it a metaphor. And so Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 15 to just say, hey, no, our faith at the very heart of it is that our Lord Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And he gives this little, um, he gives this description. And what's so interesting is when you read it there at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, what you discover is what he's writing was what we might call now creedal material. In other words, this was traditional material that was not just something that uh, Paul came up with or only Paul was talking about. Uh, the way he introduces it, he says, um, uh, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. And this was technical language saying, hey, this is what is confessed and believed in all the churches, which means that even though Paul was already writing this by the 50s, this goes back much earlier. Uh and so the, the, the earliest we can push back the information, I mean, within years of the events, uh, we see that right from the beginning, the early church was declaring that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, this is significant because you and I both know, Morgan, that legends don't develop in a year uh, in the place where they took place. These are the sort of things, because of course, that's what's often claimed, right? Is that Jesus was, right. he was a good guy. He was a good religious teacher. And then the Lord just grew. And 50 years later, 100 years later, 200 years later, it's like, man, you know, that fish became a lot bigger all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And maybe he, maybe <laughs> he came back to life and maybe he was God. But if you've got these things being proclaimed right from the beginning, Boy, that sure causes a lot of problems for that viewpoint. And that's what we can see just by looking at this historical document uh, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You know, and, and much more can be said there, but, um, you know, that's a starting point that this was proclaimed early. And, um, and I love even just seeing the sort of people, you know, you've got the different people who are like, hey, people saw him alive afterwards, a number of them, and they're alive as if to say, you can talk to them now. 
And then Paul throws in, and I am one of them. And, you know, so I think everybody, regardless of your, again, philosophical or religious persuasion, we've got to deal with that. Here's the, here are these historical documents that uh, are talking about these things. And, um, you know, so I, it's this sort of material that we can use to recognize that this was not just some hopeful wishing by some group of people that was invented 300 years later or something. But uh, our faith is really founded on historical events that we can actually make a strong historical case for. Yeah, it's so good. And just that's obviously it's brilliantly put. I think it's uh, Andy Stanley. Some of you guys know the name Andy Stanley. He's, of course, a big time pastor in Atlanta area. But I think he said, basically, if you if you if you basically if you gave him, I think it's Luke, Acts and First Corinthians, he could change the world with that. Like that's oh, all yeah. that's the, that that's the core. Of course, he's he's famous for sort of oversimplifying things. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't I don't hear him discounting the rest of the New Testament or you know or Christian scripture necessarily. But he's just em- emphasizing what you emphasize, which is among all the documents that we have, this the critical centrality of that passage in First Corinthians fifteen and how it does, like you said, creates a ton of problems for the viewpoint that Jesus was le- the, the resurrection is legendary. Jesus was legendary, all, all that kind of stuff that, that you that you tend to hear. And thankfully, and I don't know if you've seen this, but like more and more recently, I mean, I can tell this over the time since I became a campus missionary now in a pastoral ministry, that you don't hear a lot. There's a, there's a few here and there. A lot of people disputing uh, the the existence of Jesus Christ. That used to be a kind of a thing when I came in college, like, oh, maybe it didn't really exist. And you see some internet kind of, you know, hoaxy stuff. Sorry to use that word. I know it's loaded now. Uh, but, you know, clickbait articles on the internet. But no, I think, real scholar debates that anymore. And it's because it's because of the New Testament documents. Yeah. Because of 1 Corinthians 15 and the behavior of, of the people and the details in the book of Acts. So appreciate you highlighting that. One more thing here. just want any other apologetic uh, conversation kind of bucket that you feel like is crucial for the church as we look forward into doing ministry of our next season ahead through the what's hopefully the second half or whatever of this the pandemic. Or, but the church going forward, what, what's, what's a critical conversation we should be having right now? Well, Morgan, I... I tend to find over and over again, the most helpful thing is to continually point people toward Jesus. And the reason I say this is because, um, you know, when things seem to go sideways, you know, historically, the what's been brought up as possibly the you know, most consistent reason that people will give that they don't believe in God or Um, are not open to Christianity, is their suffering, the problem of evil, and not just philosophically, but experienced. And uh, because it hits us in our heart, you know, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's an intellectual question, but it's an intellectual question that hits very close to home for many of us. You lose a family member or a marriage doesn't work out, or you see suffering people around you. And we tend to ask, I think, big questions around that. And the reason I think leaning back on Jesus is so important is because there's just something powerful about the idea that God entered into our experience. And yeah, it's great to give, you know, again, you know, slick arguments for something, but something about a God who comes near 
who experiences injustice, who experiences suffering, who didn't shy away from identifying with those who were marginalized or rejected. I mean, that's the king that we follow. I mean, there's so something so striking about this Jesus. I mean, I, for me in my own life, this is why I can't stop reading the Gospels. I mean, I've read them over and over and over again, but there's something about this Jesus. There's just nobody like him. And the way he engaged his cultural context, the way he loved people, the way he spoke truth, the way he got close, the way he, you know, ate meals with people. I mean, just it's hard for me not to find an area of his life that I don't want to emulate. And so I think, you know, when people might sometimes when people think about God, it seems so abstract and so, so distant, almost like, well, I don't know where God is or what he's doing right now. But when you read about this Jesus, you realize this was an oppressed people that he was coming near to. You know, the Jews had been oppressed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and Persians and now the Romans. And it was, was, you know, for them, it was, when was this going to end? And Jesus, he came near and he walked with them in the middle of that. And I think, um, you know, Jesus's life and who he is is the ultimate apologetic. I, I, there's something so compelling about him uh, that I think anybody who's hurting or suffering or having questions, when you reflect on him, you begin to realize this is not the kind of person who would just reject me. This is the kind of person who comes near. And so perhaps God is actually drawing near to me right now. Perhaps if I pray one more time or I open up the Bible and read some scriptures, perhaps if I open up my mind to that possibility, I'll see that maybe God really is drawing near to me in this moment. And so I just think, you know, we we can't get too much of Jesus in this, in this you know, moment that we're in right now. Yeah. I love it that that's where you went because that is the hope of the church. Um, it's, it's Jesus. Um, and it's his, um, it's his person, it's his the magnificence of him, his his teaching, his life, his death, his burial, and most of all his resurrection. Um, that's the center of the faith. It always has been. It has to be. Um, there are, of course, many implications of how we move out into the world. You listed a few of them: how we connect, how we relate, how we serve, how we proclaim, how we minister, how we you know advocate for things. Um, but. Um, but his, he's at the center of it all. So I just, I think in closing here, what I like to do is take a moment, actually pray for everybody listening here. Um, that uh, I don't know that if we, if Pastor Nathan necessarily closes these podcasts with a prayer, but man, it's Morgan's turn this week. So we're going to do it. And uh, just ask you to, to pray for everybody listening to this, that they would have a sense of the nearness of God and the nearness of Jesus in their life, in their situation right now. I know I need that. So I'm included here. All the people that you're you're praying for, would you, would you mind doing that for us? Would you mind praying for all all of us? Yeah. Thank you. Lord God, we turn our hearts to you right now. Lord, you know that uh, we who are listening to this conversation, we're in so many different places. God, you see the questions we have perhaps intellectually, you see the challenges that we're facing, maybe in a marriage maybe with our children, maybe in our loneliness, Lord God. And I just remember right now that you are the God who comes near to us. And I'm praying that you would comfort 
every man and woman listening to this conversation today. I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would draw near, that you would give fresh hope, fresh strength, fresh encouragement. Thank you, God. You said, Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. But if we will remain in you and your word remains in us, we will bear great fruit. So, Father, I pray that for the people of Mosaic. I pray that for uh, any person who might be listening to this today. God, come near. Allow your word to fill our hearts and minds. And may you produce great fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. Gabe, and thank you all today for joining us here on Tuesday's R for Talking. Our, our our very special guest today was Dr. Gabe Bouch, the lead pastor of Freedom Church in Philadelphia, PA. Is it is it West Philadelphia? Right in the center, Born baby. Raised. Center Born city. Raised. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> there we go. I couldn't resist. I just who who can really? It's it's so clever, but um. Anyway, thank you for joining us today and uh, being on here. And God bless you and your church as you enter the this the most wonderful time of the year, election season in the United States of America. So um, we didn't have to wait for Christmas, man. It's coming That's in right. November. Oh, Lord, help us all. Uh, but thank you for being on here. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And we'll see you back here either online or on this podcast very, very soon. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. We love you. Have a great day. joining us for this week's episode of Tuesdays Are For Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.